So this morning we are, we're looking at Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. So after the resurrection of Jesus, a, uh, a new community was sort of forming, a new a new movement was taking place, movement of, of people. And so uh, we're going to begin to talk about that uh, this morning. So Acts chapter 2, 42 through, uh, through 47. You can follow along on the screen right here. Or hopefully you've got it with you. Uh, before we do that, let's pray. God, we're grateful that you've given us this space, this opportunity to, to open up this book and to, to hear a word from you. So we ask that you'd open our hearts and our minds and uh, speak to us, help us to hear what we need to hear. Uh, and through all of that, transform us into, into something new transform our, our community into, into something new. Help us to all look a little bit more like Jesus. Amen. So Acts 2, starting at verse 42, I'll, I'll sort of fill in the backstory, what leads up to this a little bit later on. Uh, but first we get what Luke is doing here is he's sort of giving us a little snapshot of what this, this new movement of people looked like. What, what was happening? What were the kinds of things that were, that were beginning to take place? Um, and here's how it goes. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common, which I would argue is a miraculous sign and wonder. Selling their possessions, selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Again, I would argue a miraculous sign and wonder. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. That's a lot of people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. The Lord added to their number daily the number of people who would join into this new sort of community, this new thing that God was birthing into the world daily. That's awesome. So that's the story. That's what we've got. Now, I want us to, I want us to think about something for a minute. I want us to think about, this is coming out of left field, but that's fine. What makes a restaurant a restaurant? Now, maybe you can have a conversation on your couch or wherever it is you are now about what makes a restaurant a restaurant. If we were all together gathered in this place, I would ask for suggestions and we'd have a, a fun little live talk about what makes a restaurant a restaurant. But since you're there, wherever that is, and I'm here, and 
I'm a technological dummy, so I can't follow along if you were to do some comments down below. Plus, there's a 16-second delay-ish between what's happening here and what you're watching at home. I'm just going to tell you what I think makes a restaurant a restaurant. Think about that. If there's a 16-second delay and you're watching this live at home, that means I'm speaking to you right now from the past. Anyway, what makes a restaurant a restaurant? Food. Food makes a restaurant a restaurant. A restaurant is a place that prepares, sells, and serves food. Without food, it's not a restaurant. People. People make a restaurant, right? The people who find you a seat, uh, the people who prepare the food, uh, the people who serve you the food, and then also the people who clean up after you've just made a mess of things. So it's food, people, there's usually a place. A restaurant is a place. You go there and they give you a place to sit. Like There's tables and chairs. There are place settings with plates and forks and knives and spoons and cups and some places have booths, some places have bar tops and bar stools. There's a place without any one of those things and it just, well, it wouldn't be a restaurant, right? We could call those things the marks of the restaurant. You got food, you got people, you got a place, right? The marks of a restaurant. Let me ask you another question. What makes the church the church? Huh. What are the marks of the church? Like, what are the essentials? What do, you, what do you gotta have? Now, historically speaking, there have been all sorts of different ways that people have tried to answer this question, but according to our own tradition, there are three marks of the church. I'm gonna give them to you right now, really quickly, so I won't bore you. The first thing is this, the preaching of the gospel. That means we take this book, we read it, and we talk about it. The preaching of the gospel. Right? The second thing is the administration of the sacraments. You've got the Lord's Supper and you've got baptism. The third mark of the church is church discipline. Gently correcting people's faults. Right? Making sure that we're all sort of living the best kind of life where everyone flourishes. Now, when I first learned that, I thought to myself, and when I think about it now, I still think, wait a minute, that's it? Like, that's a really thin list. There's got to be more to it than that. There's got to be more to it than just three marks of the church. That's it. Now, of course, there are all sorts of other things that we could add to that list to sort of fill it out and, and make it way more robust. What makes the church the church? Or perhaps we could ask another question. What kind of church does Jesus desire? Or perhaps we could ask yet another question. What kind of church would Jesus want to go to? <laughs> That's a provocative question right there. We could have all sorts of good conversation about that. Well, what kind of church would Jesus want to go to? How do we fill that list out? How do we make it more robust? What makes the church the church? Well, I think this story right here helps us out. A little bit. So let's sort of jump in. But before we do, here's a little here's a little backstory. Here's what happened right up 
to what we read this morning. After the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus gathered his followers and he said, hey, wait in Jerusalem and I'm going to send you a gift. And they're all like, what gift? And, they're, and he's like, I'm going to send you the spirit. They waited and the spirit came. And the way that Luke describes it is just absolutely bonkers. It's nuts. It's crazy. The spirit came, showed up in wind and fire and sort of blew the doors off the place that they were sitting. Now, at the time, there were people in Jerusalem from all over the place, different regions, different countries, different places, and they all spoke different languages, and they were celebrating together this thing called Pentecost. So when the disciples started describing to them what was going on, each one of them heard the disciples speaking in their own language. And Luke tells us that everyone was amazed and perplexed and some people thought that they were so crazy that they may even be intoxicated, like they're drunk. They were just making a scene, which I think is hilarious. Well, anyway, so then Peter stands up and he preaches a sermon, get this, to complete strangers. You could say that this is the first Christian sermon. This is the first sermon of the church. Peter stands up and he preaches to complete strangers. And Luke tells us, that 3,000 people were added to their number that day. Whoa. Now we get to what we read this morning. And Luke gives us this little description of the kinds of things that started taking place, that started happening in this new community that the divine was forming. Right? And it's kind of a day in the life of kind of a thing. Like, this is kind of what it looks like, Luke is telling us. So I'm just going to pull a few things out, and then we're going to talk about them. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They ate together. They prayed together. Everyone was filled with awe. There were miraculous signs and miraculous wonders. They shared everything. They sold a bunch of their stuff and gave to anyone as he had need. Get that. They gave to anyone anyone who had need. If you translate that word from the Greek to anyone, it literally means anyone. It's not complicated. It's totally unambiguous. This wasn't just for church people. This wasn't just for club members. This wasn't just for insiders. They gave to anyone, anyone who had need. And then there's this last little line, almost written as an aside. Luke tells us that the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And by that, he means the Lord added to their number daily those who were joining this sort of new way of being in the world. This community that was totally devoted to something new and different and sort of partnering with whatever it was that God was up to now in the world. That's good stuff right there. What makes the church the church? Oh, well, I think in here, the first thing I see is they were devoted to the apostles' teachings. And what I see are a, a group of highly committed people, committed to their own learning and to the, to the learning of the, com- the community around them, the, the people around them, others in the community. They were literally teaching one another. Now, here's the deal. 
I don't think this was church the way we think of church today. Remember, 3,000 people were added to their number after Peter did his thing that first time. 3,000 people had joined this movement. Add to that the fact that God was adding to their number daily, and you've got a huge thing going on here, a lot more than just 3,000 people. So when it says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the apostles weren't sort of functioning as modern-day pastors function. They, weren't, they don't, weren't doing what I do. No, it just wasn't possible. Like the movement was moving far too fast, far too quickly, far too furiously for anything that well organized to be happening No, there were just too many people. This was spontaneous spiritual combustion. What we have here are people taking the teachings of the apostles and doing their own learning. And what was the apostles teaching? Well, the best guess that we have is they were taking what Jesus had taught them, this new way of living in the world that he both taught about and modeled, and they were passing that along to everybody else. So they were talking about the teachings of Jesus. They were talking about the life of Jesus. And they were doing their own learning. What we have here are people taking responsibility for their own faith and for the faith of their neighbors, for the faith of the rest of the community, for each other's faith. And here's how I imagine it went down. They would gather in someone's little home, maybe 10 of them at a time, maybe 15 at most, 20. We're not talking about large sanctuaries here. We're talking about small places. And they would sit together and they would plot out step by step how in the world were they going to become more like Jesus? Right? This wasn't this wasn't what we try to think what we think of today as church where we we sort of learn some theological things, some theological knowledge and we make sure we have all our ducks in a row and we all believe the right things. No, that's, that's not what they were doing. They, were, they weren't just memorizing just to memorize to make sure that they got some systematic theology down and so that they fit in the right community. They weren't just, they were memorizing in order to pass along. These little underground groups would get together, they would scheme together, and they would plot together. How in the world were they going to live Jesus' teachings out? How were they going to live this new kind of life and start to transform their community. Like I imagine they would get together and they would ask each other some really tough questions. Not questions like, do you believe the right things and in the right order and make sure that you're all on the same page, but I think they would ask even tougher questions than that. They would ask each other questions like, what did Jesus value the most? What was most important to him? And how do we then adopt those same values? So they would literally go through the stories and teachings of Jesus and think to themselves, what does Jesus value the most? And how do we then adopt those values? How do we put into practice the things that that Jesus taught? How How do we love our actual neighbors like the people who live next door and across the street and in our communities? How, how do we love our city as much as we love ourselves? How do we love our enemies? There's a question for you. 
How do we love our enemies? What does it look like to serve? I mean, really serve. Jesus said, I came to serve, not to be served. Values that. How do we serve? I think they would ask each other really hard questions like that. And then they would make real concrete decisions about how they were going to live this stuff out. About what kinds of changes they were going to make in their real lives in order to live these things out at home, at work, at school, at play. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Man, that's church right there. How are we going to actually be different? How are we actually going to live more like Jesus and become more like him? Man, that's church. Mm, That's some good church right there. What makes the church? The church. Here's the next thing I see. And it might seem silly at first, but it's not. They broke bread together. They devoted themselves to the the breaking of bread and to the fellowship. Like the Greek word here is to koinonia. We'll get to it. They loved to eat together. And they did it all the time. Now, here's the deal. Most churches would say that they're really good at eating together. And most churches are really good at eating together. And I have to be honest, man, when when we're able to gather together, our hospitality team, man, they are on point. we got some pretty good eats here. We don't have normal church coffee. Like, we buy coffee shop grounds, and we brew some pretty decent coffee here. When we throw a potluck or we throw a cookout, I'm telling you, man, we know what we're doing. It would be weird if there were people in the church who didn't like to or didn't want to eat with one another. That would be weird. But here's the deal. If you think about the church, like the whole church, the worldwide, the big church, I mean, if we're honest about it, there are plenty of Jesus people who don't like other Jesus people. I mean, this is our history. It's good for us to just be honest about it. I mean, if you find yourself on the wrong side of politics, if you find yourself on the wrong side of something as silly as what to wear to church, if you find yourself on the wrong side of what style of music, if you find yourself on the wrong side of liberal or conservative, if you find yourself on the wrong side of certain social issues, look out, man. Things get nasty really quickly. It's not cool, man. The fact is the church, the church has been really, really good at building walls and erecting barriers. I mean, just look at how many denominations we have. Like we divide over the smallest of things and that right there, man, that grieves me. Friends, we can disagree on things and still stay together. Look, I hope that as we've been worshiping online, especially those of you who, who are just sort of beginning to connect with us, and I, you know, these, this is the beginning of conversations. Whatever I say, whatever I give to you, it's always the beginning of the conversation. You don't always have to agree with me. Like, I'm not telling you what to believe and what to think. This is just the beginning 
of the conversation. We can disagree on things and still be together. We can disagree on things and still love one another. We can disagree on things and, and still share a table together when we can actually share a table together. Yes, I believe we are that mature. Yeah, because if we can't do that, then all we're doing is allowing ourselves to be conformed to the patterns of this world because that's the patterns we see in this world. Even at the highest level of leadership, where if you disagree with me, you're out. It's over. I can't deal with you. Or, or we start name-calling and pushing. Come on, man. We're a new kind of community. This is a different kind of thing. And the presence of the Spirit, the presence of Jesus, makes it possible. Like, if we can't do that, we're no different than anyone else. These people broke bread together. They formed this thing called koinonia, a new kind of community where, look, we're all in this together all the time. Man, that's church. That's church right there. What makes the church the church? Like, here's the last thing I see. And this thing gives me goosebumps. Literally, if you could see me now, I've got goosebumps. Like if we were broadcasting in 4K, you'd see goosebumps. Thank goodness we're not broadcasting in 4K because you don't want to see this in 4K. But this is what I'm talking about. Extreme generosity. There they are again. Extreme. I'm talking about the kind of generosity that transforms things that transforms whole communities, that transforms the world. Listen to what he says. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. They gave to anyone. Again, not just insiders, not just members, not just club people. They looked out at the world, they saw a need, and they're like, man, we can help with that. They gave to anyone as he had need. Now this is a very different way of being in the world. It's totally different. <clears throat> there was another force at the time in the world doing its best to transform the world. It was called the Roman Empire. Here's how they were transforming the world. They perfected this thing called the execution stake. We know it as the cross. Like they would roll into your town or your village and they'd have a bunch of soldiers armed to the gills and they would make you claim, Caesar is Lord. If you did that, and if the leaders of your village did that, then you would become part of the Roman Empire. You would then pay taxes, and then the Roman Empire would use that money to build a bigger army so they could do more of this stuff, capturing more towns and more villages. And if you did not say Caesar is Lord, they would crucify you. You see, that's a very different way of transforming the world. They were transforming the world through force through violence, through coercion, through fear. But then at the very same time, there was this new movement beginning to bubble up from underneath the surface that insisted certain things. They insisted that things like love, they insisted that things like generosity, they insisted that things like humility and service, that those things were a better way. 
to transform the world. Like this group of people would gather together at what they called love feasts. They literally called them love feasts. There'd be bread, there'd be wine. The wealthy would bring in all kinds of good food to eat and the poor would bring what they could, but everybody, everybody ate. And before they would eat, they would ask each other questions like these. Does everybody have their rent paid? How about our mortgages? All that taken care of? Like Jimmy, you were having car trouble last week. Did you get your brakes fixed? Right? Jane, you had that leaky faucet. Did you get that taken care of yet? No? Mary, here's a plumber. Mary, could you go help Jane and maybe make sure her leaky faucet is fixed? And I imagine that they would bring friends into this new community where these, these love feasts, and they would be nervous at first, and they would be like, well, what about Rome? What about Caesar as Lord? And they'd be like, nah, man, Jesus is Lord. There's a whole new and different way of being in the world. Love and generosity and humility and service, those are a better way to transform the world. And that's what we're up to. Come and join us. You'll see. It'll make a real difference in your life. Listen to this. I love this. A couple of generations after Luke wrote this, there was this guy known as Justin Martyr. And he wrote about why people loved the church so much. Literally, a generation after Luke wrote this, Justin Martyr was writing this about why people loved the church so much. Not just church people, why the communities loved the church so much. Here's what he said. He said, we who once took most pleasure in accumulating wealth and property now share with anyone in need. What? We who once took most pleasure in accumulating wealth and property now share with anyone in need. We who hated and killed one another and would not associate with people of different tribes because of their different customs now, since the coming of Christ, live familiarly with them and pray for them. <laughs> what? So good. Here's another one. A generation after Justin Martyr, a guy writing from, from northern Africa named Tertullian. Here's what he wrote about the church's reputation for their social generosity and building bridges that made community instead of walls that divided people up. Here's what he wrote. Our care for the derelict and our active love have become our distinctive sign. Our care for the derelict and our active love have become our distinctive sign. See, they say how they love one another and how ready they are to die for each other. How good is that extreme generosity? What makes the church the church. I think it's people gathering together and making concrete decisions after, they're, after they've had a conversation about the things that Jesus taught and the things that Jesus valued the most, making concrete decisions about what kinds of changes they were going to make in their life so they could live a life more like Jesus. Actual change. I think this new kind of community where people can gather together and experience this thing called koinonia, this, this thing where 
like everybody belongs and we're going to make it happen and we're going to love each other even across differences. Oh, it's so good. And then this last thing of extreme generosity, the, the reality that we don't exist for ourselves, that we're not just here for us, but we're here to, to bless, to, to give ourselves away. And those things, I think those things are, are marks of a church that Jesus would want to belong to. Right? And I, I think that that's the kind of church that we're, we're trying to create here. So when we get back together again, the, come join us. We really do need you. It would be great if you came because that's the kind of church, that's the kind of movement that we here at Renew, well, it's what we're trying to do. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for this little story showing us a, a different way to be together. Thank you for this movement that is typically called the church. And God, we ask that, that you would help us to learn how to value what you value most. Help us to have the courage to, to sort of make those decisions in our lives, to, to actually make concrete decisions about how we're going to become more like Jesus and not get hung up on differences Help us, to, help us to have and show the kind of maturity where we can love people. And we can love people no matter what and continue to give us the resources and encourage to just recklessly give ourselves away in this thing we might call extreme generosity. It's that kind of thing that transforms the world. God, help us to, help us to get in on that more and more and more as we gather together. Build that kind of place here, Jesus.